Triple killer Kenneth McDuff was on the run. The mother of the psychopath knew where he was, but she wasn't talking. So the fugitive hunters rounded up the usual suspects from an underworld of ex-cons in Central Texas. They found McDuff's prison sex punk, Billy Earl. Crudely made black prison tattoos covered the obese ex-con from head to toe. The marshals called Billy Earl maggot. It didn't take them long to persuade Billy Earl to give up the name of McDuff's running buddy, an ex-con, 34-year-old Alva Hank Worley. Investigators discovered that Kenneth McDuff's beer-drinking buddy was Alva Hank Worley. The 34-year-old ex-con was a petty thief and habitual drug user. The pudgy, bearded construction worker carried a 12-pack of beer everywhere he went. The trail to Worley led U.S. Marshals to a flea-bag, rat-infested motel in Central Texas. Every night, U.S. Attorney Bill Johnston and Marshals Parnell and Mike McNamara rolled into the parking lot of Bloom's Motel in their war wagon called Bigfoot. They rousted Worley out of bed and peppered him with questions about his association with McDuff. Parnell McNamara calls the tactic driving them up. We were down in Bell County, which is uh, one of McDuff's main stomping grounds, Temple, Belton, all down in there. And um, we were going are paying a visit to all of his buddies that were with him in TDC, his old prison buddies. We were leaning on them pretty hard, read between the lines. Um, finally, um, one of them uh, told us about Hank Worley, that he had been running with a guy named Hank Worley. So we found Worley at Bloom's Motel, just south of Belton. So we paid Worley a visit. Now, that place is a real dump. It's a trash pit. You know, you almost have to have a four-wheel drive to drive across the parking lot or you fall in a crevasse. Yes, yeah. And just a rat hole. You couldn't believe people lived in there. It was so appropriate for Worley to be living in such a rat hole. So we paid Worley a visit. And he's an ex-con. He's an ex-con. He's living there with his 14-year-old daughter. So Worley won't tell us anything. You know, he knows McDuff, but he won't tell us anything. So we paid him a visit the next night. So we started paying him a visit, banging on his door almost every night at midnight. And we'd sit on the parking lot, shine our floodlights into his room, uh, just trying to get his attention. And we felt like we came real close to him confessing and then he would clam up. So one night we were on the old Dallas Highway where a bunch of these sorry beer joints are. And there was a place out there called, uh, trying to think of the name of it. Uh, anyway, I'll remember it here in a minute. Oh, yeah. But we went in that thing because we heard that McDuff had been in there. So we go in and talk to the woman that's running it. And... Um, she says, well, McDuff hadn't been in here in a long time, but there's a fellow out there drinking beer that McDuff used to work for. And I said, really? And so we have him come in the office. He said, uh, yeah, McDuff used to pour concrete for me. 
but uh, haven't seen him in a good while. Uh, but uh, I asked him about Hank Worley. He said, yeah, Hank Worley is working for me now. So we explained to him that we felt like Hank Worley was a prime suspect just by the way he was acting uh, in maybe one of these murders. And he said, I will talk to Hank this weekend when I go back to Temple. Deputy Sheriff Tim Staglich had also turned up the heat on Worley. You may recall from earlier episodes that Staglich took the missing persons report from Macduff's mother three days after Melissa Northrup vanished from a Waco convenience store. It was a ploy by his so-called pistol-packing mama to cover up McDuff's sudden disappearance. By this time, the U.S. Marshals had connected McDuff to Northrop's kidnapping and that of Colleen Reed from an Austin car wash. So, uh, Worley uh, was wearing down. I was talking to him twice a week, three times a week, and he never asked for an attorney. And, and when... when uh, Suspects act like that, you you put pressure. You put a massive amount of pressure on them. Worley broke under the pressure. The ex-con called Steglitch to come to meet him. And at the time, he was living at the Glorious Blooms Hotel in Belton. And uh, You smile as you say, Glorious, a real dump. It's, uh, it's horrible. It's just horrible. And uh, you would expect Hank to be living at a place like that. Unfortunately, his 15-year-old daughter was living there with him. So Hank said he wanted to talk to me. And so I pull up at Bloom's Motel. And Hank comes over to the passenger side door before I can get out, which kind of troubled me. And he opens the door and he said, I was with McDuff when he took that woman from the car wash. I said, okay, Hank. I said, don't say anything else right now. He said, I got to ask you a favor. I said, what is it? He said, I'd like to go tell my daughter goodbye because I might not ever see her again. I let Hank walk away from me to his daughter. She was outside, of course. And he goes over to her and uh, probably did not tell her much about what was happening. And then he came back to the car and he was a different person. He had, he had really settled down after I allowed him to to talk to his daughter. And so that's when it started. Worley waived his right to an attorney. Tim Staglich questioned Worley at the Bell County Sheriff's Department in Belton. Staglich is a master of the interrogation room. Good investigators know how to read body language and nuances in how their subjects answer questions. Dan Stotes, who led the Marshals Task Force, says Steglich broke the Colleen Reed kidnapping case wide open. Tim's a good investigator. Tim was able to make him feel comfortable. Tim was able to, to, to uh, uh, read his body language. And Tim was able to tell him, look, uh, there are times, and this is, I'm getting secondhand, but there are times where Tim said, quit shaking so much, you got to come clean and touched them, and I think that human touch flipped him over. Worley made and signed three statements about McDuff's kidnapping of Colleen Reed from an Austin car wash. His first statement started at 5.45 p.m. on April 20th of 1992. Worley tried to downplay his part in the kidnapping and sexual assault. He claimed to be a mere spectator. Worley started a second statement at 3.55 a.m. the next morning, and it, 
Worley admitted more responsibility for the crime. Three days later, Worley took a ride with investigators to retrace the route of the kidnapping. He gave a third statement with even more incriminating details. Worley's confessions are disturbing, not just because of the graphic details of sadistic torture and rape, but because of how casually he describes the last hours of Colleen Reed's life. In a few moments, you will hear an abbreviated version of Worley's statements. Out of respect for Colleen Reed's memory, her family, and this audience, I have deleted profane language and graphic descriptions. Macduff is no ordinary serial killer. While some men play golf or video games for fun, or make football and baseball their pastimes, Macduff made a sport out of sadistic torture and murder. He was so good at disposing of the bodies. He, he went through a lot of trouble. Uh, most uh, serial killers aren't going to dig a grave. Uh, he did not want the bodies found. Some serial killers do. He didn't want any notoriety. This is what he did for fun. And he didn't want to get caught. During the confession that you are about to hear, Worley refers to Macduff as Mac. His prison buddies called him Big Mac. If you do not want to hear the confession read, now is the time to stop. My name is Alva Hank Worley. I am 34 years of age. I have already given statements to Investigator Steglich and others about my knowledge and involvement with Kenneth McDuff and the female at Austin Car Wash. Back in December, about two or three days after Christmas, Kenneth McDuff picked me up at my sister's house. She lives at the SS Mobile Home Park west of Belton, Texas. I was living there at the time also. It was six or seven at night when he picked me up. We decided to go to Austin and get some coke or crank. The only place I knew to get that was near at the university. I suggested to Mike that we go by the UT campus. Mike drove downtown instead of going to the campus. I did not ask him why. I figured he had wind up back over there. We drove around and finished up our beer and we got something to eat at the Dairy Queen at Congress. We sat there and ate. Mike drove down 6th Street and he drove around the car wash. That is near 6th. It was one street south of 6th. He drove around the car wash twice. I noticed someone washing their car in one of those bays. This was the only person at the car wash. The car was small and light color. Mike pulled into one of the bays facing the main road. I thought he was going to wash the car and get rid of the empty beer bottles. Mike did not say anything. He just got out of the car, walked over to the next stall where the only person was at the car wash. I heard his voice but I could not hear what he said. I did not hear anyone else. Immediately after I heard his voice, Mac came back and he had a girl by the throat and her hands behind her back. I think he had one hand on her throat and one hand holding her hands. I could hear her gurgling and she was pleading with him. She was saying, please, not me, not me. She was kicking back, but her feet were off the ground. He had left the driver's side door open and he carried her to that side of the car. He was having trouble getting her in the back seat. He told me something. 
I don't remember what it was he said. I'm not sure if I helped him put her into the car, but I might have. She was saying, please let me go. Please don't let this happen to me. I think I was outside the passenger door. Mike told me to get in and hold her. I got in the back seat, held her wrists, and pushed her against the side of the car. As we left the parking lot of the car wash, Mike went the wrong way on the street that runs in front of the car wash. She was telling me not to let him hurt her. Mike kept north on the interstate till about Round Rock and pulled over on the shoulder of the interstate. He got into the back seat with the kid and he told me to drive. Mike hit her several times in the head when he first got in with her in the back seat. He took off all his clothes. I think he laid her down and got on top of her. She scratched Mike's eyes. He said she tried to hurt me real bad. He slapped her and she said, okay, okay. Mike tied her hands behind her. He used a white string or cord. He lit a cigarette and burned her with it. She made a real agonizing moan when he did that. He made some threat to her about not acting right. As we got into Salado, Mac was putting on his clothes. As we headed north, out of Salado, Mac asked me where we were. I was near a road sign that said Amity Road, and I told him Amity Road. He told me to pull over, and I started to pull over on the interstate, and he told me to pull over on the service road. As I approached the median that's between the service road and Amity, Mac said he was going to get rid of the girl. This surprised me, and I looked back at Mac, and I remember almost hitting the median. Mac told me to watch there where in the hell I was going, and I swerved, missing the median. I pulled over on the service road just north of Amity, and Mac told me to get in the back. I did this, and Mac drove. I tried to settle the girl down and she told me to stay in there in the back to keep Mac away from her. I took off all of my clothes. I finished having sex with her by the time we got to Belton, and I had my clothes back on by the time we got to 6th Street exit. Mac exited at 6th Street in Belton, and he drove to Highway 317. Mac drove north on 317 several miles. He turned to the right on a gravel road. He told me it was the old road that ran to his daddy's house before they put the new one in. I stayed in the back seat with her. She stayed pretty calm with me back there with her. After we got to the gravel road, Mike stopped the car facing west on the gravel road. You'd have to turn the car around to end up going that way on the road. I had been holding her close to me, so I was not able to pay attention to exactly how he drove in. I had been talking to her and I asked her what kind of work she did. I think she told me she was an accountant or a public accountant or something like that. She might have said she worked for the city. She said she lived in an apartment. I think she was in her 28 or 29 years old. I got to where I was liking the girl pretty good at the time. Mac got out and took his shirt off. He reached in the car and grabbed her by the hair and dragged her out. He didn't say anything. He pulled his pants down to about his knees. He put her on the hood of the car over on the driver's side. She was sitting up. He was standing near the front tire and he had her legs on either side. He then grabbed her by the hair of the head and jerked her off of the car 
you put her on her knees. When she's on her knees facing the door, and I'm not sure, but I think he did something to make him mad. He said, I'll kill you, bitch. He pulled his hand all the way back behind himself, and he hit her so hard I could hear a loud pop or a crack. It almost sounded like a big tree breaking, and I'm sure she broke her neck. She fell backwards towards the weeds and her head bounced off the ground. She didn't move at all. Her whole body was limp. I think she was dead at that point. I had been standing at the back of the car on the driver's side. Mac was out of control. I could not believe what he had done. I told him he should have let her go. He reached back in the car and got a cigarette and my lighter. He had a good fire on the end of it and he put it on her or in her. He did that three or four times. She did not move or scream. Every time he did that, he'd take a hit off of the cigarette to get a good fire on the end of it. The last time he put the cigarette in her, I did not see the cigarette after that. Mike picked her up by the hair and walked over to the truck and put her in it. Mike told me he is going to use her up. I knew he was gonna kill her. I told him we should let her go. He said she would cause him more shit than you could imagine. Mike put his clothes on after that and put her in the trunk. Mike told me we were in this together and I'd better keep my goddamn mouth shut. He had walked over to me after he put the girl in the trunk. He had a tire tool that he had stuck in his jeans after he'd gotten dressed. He pulled the tire tool on me and told me to keep my goddamn mouth shut. We started driving back to my sister's house and Mac drove the back way down the road by Belton High School. As we got pretty close to my sister's house, Mac asked me if I had a knife. I told him I did not know where my knife was. Then he said he needed a shovel to get rid of her. I told him I did not have a shovel. He said he thought he knew where he could get a shovel, and I think he meant from his father. I knew he was going to bury her. There's one point I need to get clear about when Mike put her in the trunk of his car. He picked her up by the hair of the head and carried her dangling off the ground. She did not make any noise at all. All the way back to my sister's house, I did not hear any noise from the trunk or the back of the car. This statement is true and correct to the best of my knowledge. Investigator Steglich has typed up this statement with my permission. Signed, Hank Worley. Deputy Tim Staglitz drove Worley back to the crime scene where he last saw Colleen Reed alive. Hank, at that point, was fairly relieved. He had confessed. He had taken us everywhere we needed to go. I think that was one of the last locations that he took us to uh, because he said he did not know where the body was, and he probably didn't. Because I, th I know that McDuff, in the back of his mind, knew that Roy, Roy Dale Green talked, this one's going to talk. If they can't find the body, they can't do anything to me. As you heard in the confession, Alva Hank Worley never lifted a finger to help Colleen Reed. Steglitz says Worley showed no remorse, none. That's the one thing that troubled me about Hank. He wished it hadn't happened, but that's about it. Sadistic torture was performance art for Kenneth McDuff. His accomplices provided an audience. 
It's rare to get an eyewitness account of the depraved behavior of a sadistic sexual serial killer like McDuff. Parnell McNamara says the confession still haunts him. I remember practically every word. Yes, I will never forget it. Because that that night when he told us in detail, finally broke down what they had done to that poor girl and how much pain she was in and using a whole pack of cigarettes on her, mm-hmm. um, burning her horribly and just everything else. Um, we put Worley in jail, and I can remember driving back to Waco from Bell County, and tears started rolling down my face. And I, I'm thinking, you know, maybe I'm not a tough cop. Uh, this is tearing me up just knowing what that poor girl just went through. And uh, I just, I can remember it was very emotional after hearing and standing in the same hayfield where they did this to her at the same time of night, and you could just feel the terror that she was going through, knowing that she was probably at the end of all this be killed. And at that point, I'm sure that she wanted to go ahead and end it because of what they were doing to her. And yeah, I remember every word that lowlife Worley wrote. Worley's confession shocked Austin's laid-back culture. Author Gary Laverne says McDuff committed the unthinkable. Austin had never had torture, kidnapping, torture, brutalization uh, by a serial sexual sadist. It was it was something that uh, you know you might have heard about um, in California or in or New York or someplace, but not in Austin, not even in Texas. Texas has a lot of it has a lot of gun violence and so forth, but this wasn't even that. This was just pure brutality. And when it was made when it was made public, uh, it, it it traumatized this city. Three decades later, Bill Johnston says he still wakes up from bad dreams about Worley's confession. About six months ago, I had a horrible nightmare. I had a dream that I was in a, I don't know if it was at a prison or if I don't, it might've been a prison. It might've been like a detective's bay, sort of a squad room looking thing. And McDuff was in there, Parnell, maybe Mike. And the officers were wearing their pistols and McDuff got the drop on us. And he grabbed someone's pistol. And uh, it was the worst nightmare. It was a feeling. It was a feeling of hopeless dread, having no control over the situation. And it, it bothered me for days. I could not get it out of my mind. Usually I'll forget a dream or a nightmare pretty quickly. I couldn't get it out of my mind. And I hate to think I'm just now realizing that's probably what Colleen Reed thought. But 
um, there are people like, you know, Macduff and Macduff particularly, if he ever gets a drop on you, you're done. And it's not just that he'd kill you. It's what would happen before he killed you. But, um, I just thought of that, but it was terrible. It was a terrible, terrible nightmare. Next on True Crime Reporter, the Marshal's nationwide manhunt for serial killer Kenneth McDuff leads to a garbage truck in Kansas City. Yeah, um, well, we, we're, in the, we're in the office, and, and I remember Danny Stoltz coming in and saying, hey, we got a lead up in Kansas City, and it's looking pretty good. And, and uh, he's, uh, he supposedly got picked up on a prostitution sting but it was a ticket where they they just put his thumb down on the on the back of a ticket or something and didn't even go to jail. You know, they issued him a citation for soliciting a prostitute. We want to be your favorite podcast and we'll appreciate your review wherever you are listening to this podcast. If you have a suggestion or know of a case we should look into, email us at fan at truecrimereporter.com. To follow our email messages with updates and bonus information from episodes, please join our fan base at truecrimereporter.com. True Crime Reporter is a trademarked and copyrighted news production hosted and written by me, Robert Riggs, executive producer, Elizabeth Arnold, producer and operations manager, Grace Woodward, producer, Siler Burr, original music for the Free to Kill series, Blair King, Sound design for Free to Kill, Matt Stoker. Graphics, Brian David Kerr. You can read more about all of our news team members at truecrimereporter.com.